Hi, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, so after all the um, very in-depth histology, now we're going to take some time and actually just kind of kick back and relax and talk about different cosmetic issues. So like John was saying, I've done cosmetic dermatology and general dermatology for over 10 years. And I really enjoy doing cosmetic dermatology. So when I was asked to present about cosmetic issues, I really stopped to think, well, we could always do this standard, okay, we do this procedure and this effect happens. Or we could talk about something that it's even more difficult to quantify, is how do we select the right patient? How do we choose what, what uh, product to use? How do we uh, work with that patient to make them happy and to make us happy too at the same time? So before I get started, how many of you um, do cosmetic procedures? Okay, how many of you um, do uh, neurotoxins and fillers as well. Okay, good, so about half you guys. So for those of you who have been doing this a long time, some of the stuff, some of the things that I'm gonna talk about, we kinda do um, through intuition. We've done it for so long that you don't realize this is what you're doing. Um, so I just wanted to kinda point that out for those of you who may be new and wanting to um, enter into the cosmetic arena, just some items to think about. So before I get started, my disclosures are zero. Other than I love to do cosmetic procedures, I think that there's nothing better than botulinum toxin, <laughs> tretinoin, and um, chemical peels. Other than that, I've got nothing. All right. So we all know that facial rejuvenation and these in-office um, procedures are on the rise. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, we saw our biggest jump in the year 2012, and I expect it to be about the same for 2013. Doing uh, neurotoxins has been up 8%, fillers up about 5%, chemical peels are roughly staying about the same, about 2%, laser hair removal has gone up, as well as even microdermabrasion. So there is a great number of patients out there that have gotten very savvy about the options that are available to them, and they're coming to you for your advice. And why are they so good? Well, they're great. They're minimally invasive. They have a very high um, efficacy rate. Patients appear more youthful, and there's almost no downtime. So it's, so it's a great way to keep everybody's self-esteem up. Um, but really and truly, we all know that training is a, proper training is essential. So this is a patient of mine that I have done um, recently. And she has, uh, this was, picture was taken almost two years ago before we did anything. And this was her immediately after um, doing some filler procedures. Now granted, she's got a little bit of a chipmunk look because she's swollen from the augmentation. But as of this morning, I am still getting texts saying, I love how I look, this was great. All right, so we've got our proper training. What comes next? Well, now we're gonna to try to answer that million dollar question, how do I select the right patient? Because we don't want somebody that's going to be um, dissatisfied or possibly even um, uh, litigate. Oops, I'm sorry, I'm too fat. 
So I got, broke it down, I did uh, a lot of research, and believe it or not, I was astounded at the fact that there was not very much research out there related to dermatology in patient selection. Where I had to pull the majority of my resources from was actually plastic surgeons. So I've got a few uh, references listed in the back that I encourage you guys to take a look at. And it makes sense because the procedures that they do are much more in depth than the minimally um, invasive office space procedures that we do. But however, the patient selection is going to be the exact same. So the first thing you need to do, there's, I've got a couple different ways we're gonna go at this, but really you need to listen to your patient. We're all in a hurry. We wanna go, 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 because we've got six more people out in the waiting room. But when you're doing these uh, cosmetic procedures, you really do need to take the time. You really need to ask those open-ended questions. I always laugh, because when, when I was first getting into this, everybody always said, make sure you ask, what brings you in today? Or what don't you like about your face? You don't go, oh, you're here for that wrinkle. Because they may not, be care, they may not care about that wrinkle. Uh, they may be uh, looking at something else. So definitely ask, what brings you in today? What can I do for you? And really, the biggest part of that listening is addressing that, the patient's desires, not actually their physical deformity. Their desires are, do I want to look more youthful? Am I okay with some lines still being there, or am I not okay with any line being there? Motivation, I think this is huge, 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 huge. Why is the patient requesting this procedure? Is it something that they see, or is it something that somebody else sees? Are they trying to please that other person? That is a huge issue. So ask them, why do you want this procedure done? Why do you want this? Are, was there some sort of uh, precipitating factor that initiated that consult? Did they have a recent divorce? Ding, ding, ding. Did they not get that job promotion because somebody two or three years younger or maybe 10 years younger got it? Those are very important things to consider when you're asking questions. Risks. We always want to do informed consent. Informed consent requires that you spend the time with patient making sure that they truly understand the risks and implications that these procedures can bring. Have they done their homework? Do they know what they're asking for? Do they come in and say, yeah, I want Botox? Well, why? Well, because I'm tired of, of uh, frowning. Or do they say, I don't like the lines around my mouth? If they come into you and they just go, just fix whatever, I have no idea what you need to do, that's not so good. They need to have taken a look into uh, the various procedures that are available and thought about them. Have you provided enough information so that the patient can make an informed decision? This is so important. We take for granted because we know it, we say it over and over a million times a day, but they don't know that. So we need to make sure that we go over as extensively as we can the pros and cons, the benefits, the limitations, and what the um, expected outcomes can be. And I thought this was very interesting too. Anxiety. Does the patient appear to have some sort of apprehension about the procedure? That actually is a good thing. Because if they are slightly anxious about it, then they've, they've been thinking about the procedure. They've been thinking about the possible outcomes. And then they're gonna actually listen to you when you're providing that informed consent. So I came across this article by uh, Blackburn and Blackburn. And it was for, um, 
plastic surgeons and being able to have proper patient selection. And I thought it was great. So it's called SAGA. And SAGA stands for Sensitization, Aesthetic Self-Assessment, Peer Group Comparison, and Avoidance Behavior. And I'm going to go through all this because I think it summed it up everything that we do intuitively for those of us who have been doing cosmetic procedures for a long period of time in a very succinct manner. I'm also going to go over red flags that we should be watching out for in our patients um, and then what to do about it. And we have some cases we can work through. So aestheticality is the quality or character of a person's aesthetic sense. I have my own aestheticality. You have your own aestheticality. It's how the person perceives beautiful. And you need to establish that in the uh, consultation with your patient. Because what we always know that age-old saying, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is really what we're talking about here. So let's go ahead and go on to sensitization. Sensitization is the patient becomes sensitized about whatever defect, I'm going to use that in quotes because it's not necessarily a defect, whatever the complaint for the patient is. And sensitization could occur either by the self, so I look in the mirror and I say, you know, geez, I'm getting up in the years and I really don't like all the lines on my forehead or it could be extra extraneous. So what does that mean? So that means that Susie over here says, gosh, you look mad all the time. And you're like, I'm not mad. Or somebody says, you look angry, or you look sad all the time. And it's not that, or you look tired. So the sensitization as to the defect or deformity for the patient um, is really important. And I put the big red flag up there. So if the patient is not sensitized and is requesting a procedure to please someone else, that is something that you really need to watch out for. That is not good, because any little thing that goes wrong becomes a big deal. Aesthetic self-assessment. This is the patient's own private evaluation of the complaint. Ask them how they feel about it. Does it change your daily behavior? Um, does it make you not want to go out? So one of the ways that you can approach this is say things like, I know you've looked at this issue from many angles. And this allows the patient the opportunity to say, yeah, you know, I've thought about, well, if I did this, then this could happen. Or if you tried this, but it didn't work, do I have other options? So those are really important. And it also gives you that time with the patient to be able to provide them with empathy. They want to know that you understand where they're coming from. If you don't establish that rapport with your patient, you're going to have poor outcomes. So communication is key here. And the patient needs to give you clear, and I put that in quotes because I think it's so important, a clear idea of what they want and the ex expectations do they that they have for the procedure. Peer group comparison. Everybody does this, and if you deny it, I don't believe you. We all look at ourselves and we said, oh, if I just had that, or if I could just look this way, or, oh, she's got that same problem I do too. They need to have done this peer group comparison. They need to look at the fact that, and I, I think laser hair removal is probably one of, uh, unwanted facial hair is probably one of the uh, biggest places that we see this. Um, for those of us who do lasers. People who have, uh, especially women, who have um, unwanted uh, upper lip dark hair, they will look at every single woman that they come in contact with because it's something that 
they don't like about themselves and they're going to evaluate it on each person that they see. It's normal. They're supposed to do that. It provides you insight into their behavior if they do that. If they say that they don't do that, it kind of gives you kind of this inkling that something might be a little bit off, like they might be doing this for somebody else rather than themselves. It's a minor red flag if they deny it, but like I said, I think everybody does it. And then avoidance behaviors. These are strategies that the patient um, has developed in order to camouflage whatever it is that uh, they don't like. Uh, and, I, and I love this. Uh, you know, people say, oh, no, only take my picture on this side. That's kind of the same thing. And you want to record it down and use it for comparison post-procedure. It's very easy to document that. So red flags. There's a very extensive list in the article by Blackburn and Blackburn, but I pulled out the ones that I think are very um, uh, common in dermatology. Is this a pushy or an impatient patient? Are they solicitous, seductive, or do they have excessively flattering behavior? Do they have a maximal concern of minimal deformity? Are they rude to your office staff? Huge. Do they appear depressed or a low self-esteem? <laughs> My favorite. Do they ask tons of questions, but then don't give you time to reply to any of those questions? <laughs> and then finally, I've said this again and again, are they trying to please somebody else? Again, the, the, the impetus for going to have a procedure done really needs to orient, um, originate from the patient themselves. But I love that, rude to office staff. And we'll get to that in a minute. So I've got tons of questions here. I don't always have the answers. I have what I do in practice because I've done it for so long and it's what feels right. And we always say, oh, it must my, my gut or my intuition. It's not that. It's just training and seeing it over and over again. But in order to set reasonable expectations, you want to clearly, clearly define what is the patient's desired outcome. Then you have to determine, is that desired outcome reasonable or realistic? Is it achievable? Is there a way to get that patient's defect improved? Are they willing and, and or able to tolerate post-procedure pain or healing time? I love the ones that always say, well, I don't want any bruises, I don't want any downtime, and I can't afford this because I'm not, I can't afford the downtime because I'm not telling anybody I'm having this done. I'm using needles. I mean, everybody's anatomy is slightly different. I don't know what you're gonna, how you're gonna respond. I do my best, but I, I don't have 100% guarantee. Are they willing to accept the risks? of the cosmetic procedure. So again, it goes back to that important informed consent discussion that you have. And then finally, do you have the necessary skills to reach the patient's outcome, desired outcome? Because that's a good thing to know. So then I got to thinking about, well, you need to know your own personal limitations. This is where you have to have, unfortunately, the uh, very frank discussion with yourself, all egos aside, because we all want to go, I'm the best, and I'm an overachiever, that's why we're all in Durham, right? And I enjoy what I do, and I can make people happy, and I'm good at what I do, and you are. 
but you also need to know what your personal limitations are. And I think the very first thing that you need to consider is what do you consider vanity? And I'm going to say that you shouldn't consider anything to be vain. How is it that coming after a cosmetic going after a patient going after a cosmetic procedure could be vain, considered vain when we all want to dress nice, we take the time to get our hair cut, colored, styled, we have our teeth whitened, we take care of ourselves. So there's really not a whole lot of difference between those uh, items that we do in order to make our appearance look nice and a cosmetic procedure. They're one and the same. I love this one. Would you have any of these procedures done to yourself? I think that's a great litmus test along with the second one. Would you do them to your mama? Because if you're not going to do it to your mama because of whatever reason, then you really shouldn't be doing it on somebody else. And then, of course, because I'm a pharmacist and I have to say things like that, do you understand the pathophysiologic uh, reasoning behind utilizing the various procedures? Do you really understand their mechanism of action? And do you understand the other consequences just from manipulating that occur? Again, do you have the tools to get there? Have you had proper training? Have you done a number of test patients? Are you comfortable with performing the procedure? Because if you're not comfortable doing the procedure, then your patient's not going to be comfortable, and chances are your outcome isn't going to be as good. Is your supervising physician available and or approachable for consultation or aid? Are they going to be able to come help you? Or at least be able to call them and say, hey, this happened. What do you think we should do? And then my last one, does the patient make you feel like he needs a psych consult? Because if they make you feel like you need a, they need a psych consult, they probably do. Okay. Or you might need a psych consult once you're done with the patient. Yeah, there's that one too. All right. And I love this one. I thought this is the best quote, quote because, and I'll tell you something else in a second, but I think it's so accurate. Do you like the patient? You need to say yes or no because if it's, no, you need to think twice about doing it. And the reason why I love is Arkin Daniel said, never operate on a patient one does not like as an individual. The pre-op course is finite, but the post-operative course is infinite. They will be the biggest thorn in your side for forever. Uh, one of the, I love this, one of the um, most surgeons that I've worked with for years, I love it. So we all have those high maintenance patients, right? You know which ones you can think of, and all of a sudden names just popped in everybody's head. But he said, and I always call it the extra fee, but he purposely charges one of his patients more than he does the other one for cosmetic procedures just because he knows how much of a pain she's going to be on the back end. And what I love about him is he very frankly had that discussion with his patient. She said, you're charging me more, aren't you, than other patients? And he said, yep, I sure am. And he said, that's because you're going to require of me a lot more time and attention in order to give that to you. I need to charge you more. She goes, okay, just so we're clear. <laughs> so it's okay. We always call it a pain in the <clears throat> fee, but he really did it, and it worked out. But he was also very honest with her. And then know when to say no. Winston Churchill always said, when faced with a dilemma, do nothing. If there's something about the scenario that just doesn't feel quite right, it's okay to say no. It's 
okay. It's your license on the line. So just in general, chemical peels, we know the expectation, common um, complications that occur from doing a chemical peel, just erythema, pruritus, acne, dyschromia. When you're talking about neurotoxins, it gets a little bit more in-depth. We have bleeding, ecchymosis, injection site pain, headache. You can even have ptosis. Uh, rare, serious, they don't really happen in derm. Uh, fillers, swelling, bruising pain, pruritus, vascular occlusion, infection, and even granulomatous reactions. I didn't put that on there. Lasers, again, I always go, if I got purpura, unless if I'm using a, a vascular laser, that's expected. Crusting, edema, dyschromia, infection. You have to be on the lookout for these because these are okay. We can deal with that. But what if it's not those few that I listed there? I always think you need to be ready to expect the unexpected. Have a way for your patient to be in contact with you at, at any time for any question. And I know none of us want to give out our cell phone number. You can if you tell them they can only text you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, I do that with my students. I'm like, just don't call me. You can text me, but don't call me. Um, or at least your nurse's direct line. You don't want them to get hung up at the front if they have something that's uh, vitally important for you to know about. I think the other thing that we sometimes miss out on doing is laying direct eyes on the patient. I love the fact that we, everybody has a smartphone now and can take a picture of themselves and send it directly to you or email it to you. You know, if it's, a, if it's a time when the patient actually can't come by the office or you're not in the office that day, have them send you the picture because at least it'll give you a decent idea, if it's a good enough quality, of what's going on and you may be able to handle it from there. If not, then you need to meet them up at the office. And then trust your instincts. If the patient calls in complaining of an adverse effect and it doesn't sound quite right, don't discount it as they're just full of it. Bring them in because it is probably an adverse event and you need to look at it. So the things that I always sound uh, say if it sounds off, it is, are common adverse events that just seem out of proportion. Um, is the patient having delayed wound healing for any reason? Are they running a fever, have warmth and edema um, around the treated area because that can signify a, signi a, a serious infection? Are the adverse events um, uh, lasting much longer than they typically should? And then finally, ask the open-ended questions. What have you been doing? Honestly, I need to know so I can help you. Did, were they not truly compliant with what you asked them to do? All right, my favorite, nothing beats a great pair of hands. I think in the cosmetic world that you cannot take your MA or assistant, whoever's your assistant, for granted. They are your first defense and best um, uh, judge of character. In order for them to be there with you and be valuable, they need to understand what you're doing, your way of doing things, and the science behind it. Have them in on multiple consultations so that they understand what the products can and can't do and the patients that you typically will select for those procedures. <laughs> I think this is something that sometimes gets lost. Do the procedures if they want them, 
encourage them to have them done. Go ahead and do fillers and neurotoxins, peels, laser on your staff. They will end up not only being the, the, the best referral system that you have, but they a lot of times can even handle the minor uh, telephone calls with complaints, you know, or questions from patients because they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that is normal, that does happen, or no, you really do need to be seen. So they can help filter that and use your time wisely. And then last but not least, trust their judgment. I have had numerous times my, P my MA would come to me and go, mm, that one's cray-cray in there. And they ought to, because they have spent some time with the patient before you got there because you're off with somebody else. And so they're filling that void with small talk and things like that. They have a pretty good eye. They've seen all these patients coming in and out of the door. So they have a pretty good idea of who is okay and who is not okay. All right. So we're going to have to do this by a show of hands, but I thought this would be fun. So we have a 40-year-old woman who complains of frown lines. She states that she's constantly asked, are you mad or is everything all right? She is requesting botulinum toxin to eliminate the frown lines. She states her dad has similar lines and it makes him appear older than his age. She has heard the procedure is fairly easy with little downtime, although she's a little nervous about receiving injections of a toxin. She works as a secretary at a local high school and has been married for 20 years. She says that her husband thinks she looks fine, but told her to do whatever she wanted to make herself feel better. She's a non-smoker, non-drinker with no significant past medical history. So just knowing this little tidbit of information, how many of you, by show of hands, would go ahead and treat this patient? Okay, all right, and how many would not? Okay, good. So everybody said that they would probably go ahead and treat it. So I want to, this brings up a couple of things. We'll go through Saga so that we can make sure that she did meet all the criteria properly. But the second point that, we'll, that I wanted to make is, I think we're pretty lucky compared to the plastic surgeons. You know, even if we did have the truly uh, uh, patient, the, the true patient that did need a huge psych referral, Doing something like uh, a Botox is minimal. There's no huge lasting outcome from this, unlike like a breast augmentation. So I think that we're very lucky in Derm to be able to do this. So yes, she's coming in. She's had her sensitization. So she sees it, plus um, people have been asking her if she uh, is mad or if everything's all right. I, I threw this in here because I always love this. They're like, oh, my lines are hereditary. How many times have you heard that? Well, my lines are hereditary. My dad has them, this has them. I'm like, that's a learned muscle movement, my friend. Um, anyway, and she, she's a little nervous about receiving the toxin, so she is meeting the criteria there. And the fact that she's doing it for herself somewhat, you know, because remember, this is, um, not for her husband, is pretty good. We can go ahead and treat her. Alrighty. What do we have next? We have a 26-year-old Caucasian female presents for consultation for laser hair removal. She complains of excessive dark mustache and chin hair. She states she is so self-conscious of the hair that she keeps tweezers and a magnifying mirror in her car, purse, and desk at work. Uh, she states that she has had friends undergo laser hair removal by you, and they were very pleased with their results. She anxiously questions you on how painful the procedure will be and wants to know if there's anything you can give her to help decrease the possible pain. She's a non-smoker, non-drinker, and has no endocrine abnormalities and healthy otherwise. 
how many of you want to treat her? Okay, a little less than on neurotoxin. How many people don't? Just a couple, okay. I think in this case, this was my typical laser hair removal patient. They kept tweezers and a magnifying mirror everywhere. That's avoidance behavior, right? My favorite is they would tell me, because I, I, I always would talk about them. I'm like, well, how do you deal with this? And blah, blah, blah. And they're like, every time I'm at a red light, I'm doing this. And I get out my mirror, and I'm pulling at it. And I'm going, OK, we need to work, work on this. She doesn't have any endocrine abnormalities, so we don't have to worry so much about PCOS or other uh, thyroid um, conditions. And um, she's given you, even though she's saying, my friends have, you've done laser on my friends, and they're very happy. I think that's okay, that's a good referral base, but she is concerned about the pain and if there's anything you can give her uh, for that. And you could say things like, well, not Valium, <laughs> unless you're doing one for you and one for me. No, I'm just kidding. Not Valium, but you know, you could do like, I'll let you hold an ice pack for a second or some topical LMAX. Those are reasonable, those are reasonable. Now, if she said, no, I, I need you to knock me out for it, then absolutely not. Don't wanna do that, patient. And how would you document, <clears throat> knowing the saga that we just went through, the, uh, how would you document post-procedure that her goals and outcomes have been met? Let's say she got 85% laser hair removal. What would you expect her to do, not to have anymore? The tweezers in the mirror everywhere she turned around, right? So that would be a great follow-up question because you could truly assess how much better she's getting. Do you still have that mirror and tweezers in your car? And if she says, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I need to take that out because I don't need it anymore. You're like, Ch check, good job, okay. All right, third one. 50-year-old woman complains of deep laugh lines around her mouth. She saw a commercial for soft tissue filler and would like to have the lines completely eliminated. She interrupts you several times during the consultation saying, I just know you'll do a fabulous job and I'll look 20 again. And I trust you completely. Let's just get started. Toward the end of the consultation, she says tightly, once these deep wrinkles are gone, my husband will never stray from my side again. She has no significant <laughs> medical history. I had fun making these. Uh, drink at, she drinks alcohol socially on the weekends as a non-smoker. How many of you would want to treat this patient? Good, so I, you learned something today. How many of you would not treat this patient? Okay, why? Well, she, oops, sorry guys. She comes in saying, she's interrupting you every time you're talking. She's like, you'll do a great job. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then she slipped at the end of the consultation. And if you give people, I always say, if you give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves, right? So let her keep talking, let her keep talking. Ask her questions you know, while you're writing and you're half listening. You can get more social information out of her. So the biggest red flag for me in this patient is she's doing this because her husband is not being faithful with her. It's a good, not a good time to do this procedure on her. All right. And finally, we have a 15-year-old boy who's brought in by his mom for consultation regarding a port, port wine stain on his right preauricular area. His mother is very interested in having the lesion removed by laser because he's way too cute to have a mark like this on his face. As she says this, her son rolls his eyes. You know the audible eye roll that 15-year-old boys do? Okay. All right, as she says this, her son rolls his eyes. His mother states that it is her job to look out for his best interests while he is under her roof. 
The son has no significant past medical history, denies any alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use. How many people, number one, have had this exact scenario? Okay. Now, how many people would treat this patient? Good. How many people don't want to treat this patient? Okay. My final question, how many people would if your hand was forced? <laughs> Somewhat. It just depends. I agree. I wouldn't treat this patient this time. I have had this multiple times, whether it's a spider angioma in little itty bitty kids all the way up to a port wine stain. At the point in this scenario where I would do something very different is even though he is a minor, I would solely start talking to him. And the reason being is he's 15. Now granted, he's 15. But he's got an opinion of his own self-image at this point. And he's rolling his eyes, which means he doesn't care. It's not even on his radar. What if he thinks it's really cool because nobody else has it, and that's how he identifies with himself? So you want to make sure that that is notated in the chart um, with a patient like this. And then my standard comment for mom is always, you know, yes, there are options out there, and there are probably people who would do this for you. However, at this time, I don't think it's in your son's best interest. It's very hard to argue with that, right? I don't think this is in your son's best interest. He is not bothered by this, and he even thinks it's pretty cool. So if you take this away, if we minimize this or it's eliminated completely, which doesn't really happen totally, but it, it may change his self-esteem. Is that really something that we want to do? Let him think about it and say, you know, I don't think so at this time. When it starts to bother him, then let me know. And I do that a lot. All right. So then the final thing, final few things that I want to discuss is how do you do all of this while you're trying to establish a patient base? I think it's hard. It's a lot of work. That's why a lot of people don't want to do cosmetic procedures. You have to talk very candidly with your patients about realistic outcomes and complications. This is why I think, and especially in cosmetic derm, this is where that art of medicine really does come into play. It is fun. You get to be a sculptor, a painter, and the person who just lights up somebody else's world. Do before and after photos to show your work. I cannot stress this enough. Even if you're showing them what you can do, you need before and after pictures of your patients as well. Because I find that in the space of two seconds, you forget what you look like when you walked in the door after you've had filler. Because it's gone. It's an, the one few things that are instantaneous. Don't be afraid to refer your patients to other pri providers. That's when you have to say, this is not something I can do. I need to refer you to somebody else. Or what you're asking for is out of the limit is beyond the limit is beyond the scope of this procedure. You really need a lower facelift. Don't let your bottom line affect your judgment. I know a lot of us are on um, performance-based type uh, incentives. Don't let that affect what you do. And then while you're doing it, do it all with a big smile and say, it's great, you're just going to love it. All right, so putting it all together, I have this template in here. Do your history, can the patient define it? Um, are they sensitized? Do they have the aesthetic self-assessment? Do they peer group compare themselves? Do they ha exhibit any avoidance behavior? 
examine them? Can you appreciate the complaint? I always laugh about that. If they see it with a 10-time magnifying mirror, there is no way on this earth I'm going to see it. If I can still see it, it's fine, but 10-time magnifying mirror, you're out the door. Can you offer the procedure? And then conclusions. Do you like the patient? Did you have good rapport with them? Do they understand the procedure? And then were any red flags detected? And then your ultimate is go ahead and do it or say no. Spend time with them, gather your information, and get your office staff impressions. All right. Do you guys have any questions whatsoever? Yes, ma'am. I'm just curious, and with all your good advice, how do you actually say no to a patient, and what do you do with their response? Um, okay, so I didn't say this earlier, and I probably should, that I think DERM is probably right up there with psych. I think 85% of our job in dermatology is actually um, psych, uh, psychoanalyzing people and addressing image concerns. Um, I think it was really hard to say no when I was very first starting. You get burned a couple of times and, and, then, you, and then you get a little bit better at it. But my typical conversation goes, I first express empathy. I'll say, I really understand why you want that. I can see what you see. However, this is not the right venue for you. And then I offer them a solution because they're coming to you for an answer. And whether you give them the procedure or not, you need to be able to give them something. I'm sorry, there isn't anything, you know, hopefully in the future there is, or no, this, you know, I don't think that neurotoxin will work for you. You really do need a brow lift. I have a couple of recommendations for great plastic surgeons that I can send you to. Um, but if you have any further questions, please feel free to contact me. Come see me anytime. Because I've established that rapport, I've had good communication, and I've been very honest with the patient. So generally, that's usually how it goes. Now, the mom with the kid and the audible eye roll, those take a little bit of extra time, but it's still basically the same thing. I said, you know, it's just not in the best interest of your son right now. Please don't hesitate to call me as soon as it bothers him, because then I'll get you right in right away, and we'll take care of it. Does that help at all? It's hard. It, you have to, it's art. It is art. Yes, in the back. I think she was first. Um, I was just wondering if you charge for follow-up visits because I've had a couple of patients where I've done procedures on them and they want to come in every single day and talk about, you know, what went wrong or what, how things didn't work or, you know, the, just the outcomes didn't match up with what they thought. So do you charge for each of those visits, or how do you manage a patient coming in every day or calling every day to ask the same questions? So let me ask you a question. Did you give them an automatic follow-up right after you did the procedure to begin with? Um, it was for Botox, so I just kind of said, you know, you give did. it a couple weeks and give me a call or you can come in so we can... You know, right. take before and after pic or take after pictures. Sure. And the second question I have, after thinking about that particular patient that you're talking about right now, did anything as you're looking back after I talked about any of those red flags show up? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so in general, no, I don't charge for follow-up visits. I try to handle the majority of them via phone, and that's where my MA comes into to, uh, play with that as much as I possibly can. Um, but I, even if it's somebody that I've been doing for forever on Botox, and I know it's going to take them two weeks to, to see their effect, I will generally still go ahead and give them that peace of mind by a follow-up visit, and I just tell them to cancel it. Um, but no, I generally don't either. But at some point, you're going to have to have that conversation with the patient and say, I'm sorry that this isn't what you wanted it to look like. This procedure is probably not the best, and now we know. So now we can think about other things that we can do to improve you. Those are tough. And I bet you never pick that patient again, right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Do you generally do an endocrine workup on hirsutism patients, and if so, what do you generally order? Okay, so that's a tough one, and um, I didn't do it at first, you know, because a lot of times, um, okay, so let me back up. Generally, no. I try to do a really good history first and find out. I say, does your mom, aunt, grandma, sister, if everybody in their family seems to have unwanted facial hair or they're Mediterranean or some of the other ethnicities, then they're supposed to have that hair. That's just the way they are. I often found, I felt like I diagnosed so many people with PCOS doing laser hair removal, and I wouldn't necessarily have all the criteria, but I'm like, there is no way after I've done this many at proper settings that you should have hair, and you still do. Off you go to the endocrine. If I did the majority of the time for that, what I would do is a TSH and a... Um, CBC and CMP. So I would catch my anemic patients, I would catch thyroid patients, and then I would catch PCOS by the abnormal glucose, because that's really what you see. And then you also ask in that history, their menstruation history. Do they have severe cramps? Are they regular? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do? Um, I've had several different profiles kind of recommended to me. Sometimes I even screen for like 17-hydroxyprogesterone. Sure, sure, I've done that before. sulfate in the in a hormone profile, but sometimes it feels like overkill. So. Yeah, I agree, and it doesn't always change what you see, you know, and I think that that's probably been the hardest one for me is all the PCOS patients that you know have PCOS, and it still takes them a couple years to actually get that definitive diagnosis because just because you have PCOS doesn't mean you have to be overweight, doesn't mean you have to have all the acne, and it doesn't even mean that you have to have tons of cysts on your ovaries. So I just think it's a hard one to, to get. That's a great question. Thank you. thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for your attention.